My career sucks. Sex just isn't the same. What's my purpose? Where did this fat come from? My relationship is killing me. I'll never be happy. My debt is piling up. I'll never find love. Why can't I be like other gay guys? Hey guys, it's time to get a grip, stop whining, make a bold move, and do something amazing with your 40-plus gay life. Let's get to the show with your tell-it-like-it-is host, Rick Clemens, who does his best to never act like a dick or a diva unless you act like one first. All right, guys, here we are, 40-plus gay men. We're traveling through our little roads of life, and we hit some roadblocks, then we hit some big obstacles, and then sometimes we're just like, how the hell am I going to get around this stuff? But then we float along, and then we figure out, hey, I like doing this, I like doing that, and then one day something creative comes out of us, and we're like, oh, yeah, I definitely want to do this, but it wasn't for all those crazy things that happened before that kept us in our tracks. And thank God they don't, because today I'm talking to a author who has his first book published. It's called Lifeline Origins. And he's a, well, he's a, he's a Canadian. So don't hold that against him. Um, he's a French immersion teacher, author. He lives in Toronto, Ontario, Nova Scotia area, all that good stuff. And he's already told me he's got some stuff to like, let me just tell you, you know, all the stuff I've been through. So this is not a therapy session, but we're going to probably hit some of that with all of you listening. So Grant Miller, man, welcome to the podcast. Congrats. Book number one. That's a feat in and of itself. So glad to have you here, buddy. Well, cheers. Thanks, Rick. Um, I wanted to say thank you for allowing me to come onto the show. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast for about a year and a half now. And you hear a lot of coaches and people have really things to say. So when you get an average Joe like myself come on and tell their story, I think it's a kind of inspiring because I've heard a couple of them on your podcast. So, well, I want this to be something that's conversations with real people as well as everything else, you know, and especially for us 40 plus gay guys. Sometimes I think what better the way to hear it than to hear it from somebody who's living and breathing it. You know, Thanks. you don't have to be an expert and, and you're an expert in your own, right? I mean, come on, man, you wrote a freaking book and you're <laughs> writing some more. So that yes. in and of itself is like, a, a, well, it could be a challenge, an obstacle or a little road bump. There's probably been several of those road bumps, right? Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. What did you, what have you disliked the most about the writing the book process? I'm just curious. Ooh, um, the long night sitting at my computer, mm-hmm. uh, trying to figure out how I wrote myself into a corner and how to get myself out of it. Those were the big nights. And mm-hmm. then there would be the opposite nights where I'm sitting there and I, I look up and I realize I've been writing for six hours. Mm-hmm. And then I turn and I look at the, what I've written and said, wow, I actually wrote this. Uh-huh. So it's, it's kind of a surprise. It's kind of a surprise. It, you know, it's interesting. You and I were talking before we started recording that, you know, and the guys who have listened know that I've got a book, another book ready to, well, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to birth itself one of these days. Um, but it's done. And so I've been going through an editing and then I'm like starting to inch towards, okay, I'm going to do the book proposal. So one of the things I did is I went back through the book and literally put the chapter titles in there. I mean, the chapter titles were there, but like numerical things. Cause I had a test group read and they're like, we don't see the chapters. I'm like, this is because you're the test group. I don't want you reading the table of contents. And I wanted you to like, kind of do it. And it's so funny as I've been going back through it, I'm like, what the hell was I saying? <laughs> saying there, what mm. is you know? And I'm like, and then of course I'm like, is that a, is that a title or is that like an indent I put in here for some other reason? So it's always an interesting journey, but it is, 
it is a little bit of a bumpy ride and bumpy rides are something you're, well, you're not, not immune to based on what you shared with me. So, um, what are some of the bumpy rides that you're, you're like, okay, man, I don't know if I'd ever want to relive that, but it's made you so much of a better guy because of it. And we don't need all 50, 100. No, oh my God. Years. No. But, but when I look at my life, I see a lot of what I thought were barriers and then mm -hmm. turned out to be actually just speed bumps. A couple of them, mm -hmm. I actually thought they were dead ends. So, I mean, the coming out story is pretty typical. I lived in a small town in Ontario, uh, Canada, yeah. um, very isolated. So it wasn't easy to come out. I had to literally move to a big city and run away from home in order to actually be gay. Um, telling my parents was my first barrier. They wow. actually approached me and asked me and I wasn't prepared to answer. So I was kind of in shock and I, I actually stuttered for quite a while and I said, yeah, I guess I am. And it kind of took me for a loop because my mother said, you know, we're, we're kind of disappointed. We're not going to hear wedding bells for you. And then, so I thought, well, hmm. She's going to be that disappointed. I basically said, okay, look, mom, I, maybe you might not hear wedding bells, but I'm still your son. Right. And she just, she couldn't accept that. So I said, okay, well, here's the deal. When you're ready to change your mind, come back and see me. Mm -hmm. And I figured, well, probably won't hear for a year or something. But two weeks later, she was back saying, okay, Grant, we understand. We're trying to understand this. And so what I thought was a major barrier was just a speed bump because my parents came around quite quickly. They actually, my first partner actually came home and they actually had no issue with us sleeping in the same bed. So it, it, it switched. So my outlook on that being a barrier became a speed bump. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if I were to jump forward, uh, being a 17 year old man, or I should say kid actually in Calgary, Alberta, kind of running amok, uh, Wow. Uh, I was kind of like a, you know, kid in a candy store. So once yep. I came out and I admitted to myself, yeah, you're gay, Grant. Um, oh, I went to town. I, I, I must confess, I probably slept with 300 guys in the first year. Wow. I know. Uh, this was around. Okay. I, I, let me qualify what I, why I just said that. <laughs> I, I'm going, wow. And I'm like, uh -huh. I'm also like, mm -hmm, I understand you. I get you totally. Because I, I mean, that was me. That was me, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. I'm at, so I want to make sure guys like, oh, Rick's being misjudgy. I'm like, no, no, no. I meant, yeah, like, wow, I get it. I totally get it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And now, I mean, if you picture it back in 1980, um, it was a time when it was still kind of like the seventies and it was quite free. Yep. And in this small town or small city of, of Calgary, uh, there really wasn't much going on about that gay cancer that was going on. And so, I kind of lived my life, um, continued having sex, and uh, it wasn't until jumping ahead to 1986 that I, I actually got tested. And it turned out that I became HIV positive, and I traced it back to 1983. Mm. And, of course, I'm 60 now, so I've been living most of my adult life with HIV. But when I realized that I was HIV positive, that was a dead end for me. Because everybody was saying, uh, and they literally said this to my face, Grant, you're going to be dead in six months. I had doctors say that. Um, I heard it on the news all the time. It was a shock. Yep. 
and oh, I, I lost my first partner. He couldn't deal with it. Uh, yeah, it was pretty scary. Um, so it took me a good ooh, 15 to 20 years to actually get over the fact that I was HIV positive and actually come to realize that uh, it wasn't a death sentence anymore. It was just a bit of a barrier. Right. And it wasn't until the cocktails came out with multiple drugs and things like that, that I, I actually realized, hmm, maybe I've got a chance of surviving. So what I thought was a dead end became a, a barrier and then ultimately became a speed bump. It's just one thing that I had to overcome. And now at 60, I, I live with HIV. It's not at forefront of my life. It's in the back. I take a pill at night and I go for my blood work every six months. And now it's just part of my life. And it was a, a major obstacle, but I got over it. Right. So, yeah. Well, and I think those are the things that in the moment <clears throat> that we we have these things happening. We all, we're all human. So in, in the moment, these things are happening. We're not diminishing that it's a big thing when it's happening, but it's how we respond and react to that thing that's happening that can begin quote the healing or get us moving forward. And we've all, you know, a lot of, a lot of the guys that are listening to us. I'm assuming they're guys that are coming out or been out or everything. They've been out for some years. Some have only been out a few years. And even that coming out process, it's a big thing in the moment like you uh -huh. described with your parents, it depends on how both parties are responding and reacting. But at some point you're past it. Uh -huh. You simply past it, you know, and that's only if you allow yourself to be past it too. So I think what you're sharing is really an important piece of settling in, embracing what is uh -huh. and saying, okay, now let's go. Let's just keep going. You know, you're also very, you know, very fortunate that thank God medicine has gotten to where it's gotten to where, okay, this doesn't have to be the death sentence like it was in the nineties. We won't even go dive into that really deeply because it's just such a, it's just, it's, it still gets under my skin. And that's actually Grant. That's when I was actually coming out was in night. Well, I did come out in 1981, 82, somewhere in that one of those years right after I graduated high school and I'd gone off to college <clears throat> and my family said, Nope, not, Nope, not happening. I'm like, okay, I guess, guess not. Right. And, um, it was interesting for me to see how much I let that become a big obstacle for more than 13, 14, well, more than that, uh, almost, yeah, probably about 15 years. And then that obstacle turned into an opportunity. Like I'm either going to take the opportunity to be myself or it may be the obstacle that finally puts me in the grave, not because I was going to commit suicide or anything like that, but it's just, it's such an interesting thing when you embrace those pieces. So, so you had that big obstacle. I think there's been some relationship obstacles too, that kind of like distracted you along the way. Um, <laughs> maybe a few, I don't know. I mean, but well, where well, would you like to go with that? Because that's a that's a, also an interesting piece of the puzzle. Well, when we talk about relationships, um, going back to the HIV issue, um, there was my perception of what HIV was and how I felt about myself. Then there was the perception of my parents. Because when I actually went to them and said HIV positive, my mom turned to my dad and said, I told you, I told you, I told you. And it went from there to basically, oh, what are we going to do? How much time do you have to live? And I said, I don't know. I'm just going to keep living my life and be what I am. 
But yep. what I ended up doing was carrying the shame that I had mm. ever since becoming HIV positive. I carried it on my shoulders. Ugh, geez, almost up to, I would say, 2010. So wow. most of my adult life, I carried the the shame and the perception that uh, I was dirty, that nobody would love me, uh, that people who did associate with me were okay about it. But there was that, oh, there's that God aids yet kind of mentality that the straight environment had. And it was, you know, and I, I had people actually say that, you know, have you got AIDS yet? Cause you're gay. And so there was always that um, uh, shame attached yep. to it. But there was um, even shame in our own community. At oh, the start. huge. Shame. Like, Oh, don't go near that. Don't go near that. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. And, um, and so that didn't help anything either. It no. just, it only exacerbated it in so many ways. Well, you were, you were talking about the, the nineties. I remember going onto the original uh, chat lines I think it was Manhunter or something like that. And when they discovered I was HIV positive, I actually had gay men say to me, why are you on here? You shouldn't be on here. And they felt that I didn't belong. And I, I, I really struggled with that. I mean, I just internalized all that. And well, of course. Yeah. Because it might, I mean, there's nothing like, well, first of all, any of us who've come out of the closet, there's nothing like shame. And I'm not saying other people don't experience shame. But there's nothing like the experience of gay shame, number one, or gay, lesbian, bi, trans. I mean, hello, we're going through it all over again. Um, but then to add that other piece of the puzzle, I mean, when I when I did finally come out at 36 and I divorced my wife and everything, well, and I still have this picture. It's one of the pictures I, that I have that I constantly just like have to remind myself it's a picture of me and my husband, one of the first dates we went on. <clears throat> and I look sick. I would lost so much weight because of the stress and everything. Plus, okay, I'm out on the market. I got to, you know, I got to quote, get the gay body. Right. And so I started cycling and I lost a ton of weight. Shortly after that picture, my parents were, I don't even, I think they were living in Northern California. We weren't doing well together, but we were trying to make it work and they saw me and same reaction. See, he's sick. He's sick. We knew this was going to happen. I'm like, I'm not sick. I mean, I was, I was sick because I was in this headspace of this is what I got to do. I got to lose all this weight to be attracted. And I didn't look good. I mean, I'm a six foot four guy and big, bigger build like you. And I had dropped from like 290 to 185 and it was just, I was skin and bones. And so it's, it's just interesting to hear these perceptions that we, we lay on each other. Number one, of uh, this is what it means. This is how you should be. So, um, yeah. so I'm curious for you as you've navigated through all these things, because you came to this place where you're a teacher, you're also mm -hmm. an author, but as you went through those experience of roadblocks and big roadblocks and small speed bumps and everything, how did that start to maybe lead you towards, I'm going to go start writing books. Or did it? Maybe that had nothing to do with it. Well, actually, that's a, a, a great question. I mean, when you think about gay men, we don't often have a roadmap on how to develop relationships because we have the straight model or we have uh, we look forward and we don't really know what it is that we have to do and how we develop a relationship with someone else because right. we've spent so much of our life hiding who we are. And so when you start opening up to another man, it 
can be really quite confusing. So for me, I think I always considered myself very naive. So when I got into relationships, um, I didn't really know why I was in the relationship. Mm. So, uh, you know, before we started the the conversation, we were talking about narcissistic people. Um, here's a naive Grant going into relationship with a man who charmed the pants off me. And I thought, right. hallelujah, I've met somebody who's A, good looking, B, he's got a great bod, he's fun in the sack, and he read me Dorothy Parker poetry on the first night that we had a date. And I'm sitting there, my God, he is a charmer. So I fell head over heels for this guy. Uh, he charmed the pants off me constantly. And so I basically invited him to move in with me. And so from 2010 onwards, uh, he lived with me for six years. Uh, we had a very rocky relationship. But now, Rick, when you're in a narcissistic relationship, you you sometimes have to take responsibility for yourself. Yeah. And I mean, it took me two relationships with two narcissists to come to understand that codependency was my aspect and that I had to take responsibility for that. So when I ended up marrying the first man and he became a husband for three years, um, I overlooked a ton of red flags. And those red flags were things like telling me to fuck off all the time. I mean, in the first six months that we were together, he actually told me to fuck off at least 50 times. Now you'd wow. think, you'd think, okay, well, that's a red flag. Well, me, no, I'm HIV positive. This is my last relationship. It's, I'm going to make it work even if it kills me sort of idea. And so yeah. I decided, okay, I'll just accept that. And so for six years, I spent my life with a man who was abusive um, and I allowed him to do so. Mm. And so for me, that was a roadblock. I mean, I was in a relationship. I made the promise that I would stay with him regardless. I would do everything to make the relationship work. And he did everything to indicate that he was really not all that interested in me until I threatened to leave. And at that of point, course. he became, oh, Grant, you know, like we're, we're going to rekindle the, friend, the love and all that stuff. And it would be back to normal. And then as soon as he got his claws back into me, then he let go and started back to his old stuff. Yep. And, and I, you know, I, you probably know that narcissists love to play the victim. Yep. And, and it's all about them. Yep. Uh, that was definitely the situation. If I ever even argued with them, it was always turned around. Well, first of all, we would spend 20 minutes arguing about whether we were arguing or not. And then once he realized, yeah, we're arguing, then it was me doing something to him. And it was just... Yeah, it's okay. never it's never them. It's never no. them. Yeah. It's always the other person. And having grown up in that kind of an environment, it's it's very frustrating to say the very least. Because, yeah. but but you are very similar to most people who end up in a relationship like that. You're like, oh well, at least it's something. At least it's a warm body. At least it's somebody who says they love me. They're reading me poetry, because we haven't dealt with our own ability yet to like see ourselves in the best light possible and go okay in fact um one of my one of my other podcast guests i don't know maybe it was or somebody else said um when you truly learn to love yourself you learn that you don't need the love of a man to love yourself mm -hmm. and i thought that's a really it's, it's kind of one of those tongue twister sort of statements i know i didn't get 100 percent right but that's one of the greatest growth moments when you learn to love yourself you also learn 
to love that you don't need the love of another man to make that happen. Yeah, and it's just it's such a valuable, valuable space to play in. So as well, you started to go through all of that, then you started, it sounds like you started having these epiphanies and realizations like, okay, I'm much worth more than this. Mm-hmm. So then how did that help you start to like, okay, if I'm going to love myself and be with myself, how did that help you start to grow into? And I'm going to like, go do some stuff I love doing. Mm. Well, I'm going to have to back it up a little bit because after I booted him out of our house and got mm-hmm. him out of my life and divorced him and everything, um, I jumped into a second relationship before I'd actually dealt with it all. And lo and behold, I'm in another relationship with another narcissist. So, oh, and again, um, I thought, well, you know, I'll try to make this work. So for two years, I spent with another narcissist, long distance, as a matter of fact, and he lived down in Las Vegas and I was up here. And uh, one day he just gaslit me because Mm. I hadn't said goodbye to all my friends because he was afraid that I would sleep with everybody while he was away. So by the end of our two-year relationship, I had basically said goodbye to all my friends for him. And again, I didn't see any reason what was wrong with that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I just accepted it. I said, okay, this is what he wants. This is what he's going to get. And it took one person that I had forgotten to unfriend on Facebook was he got with me and I never heard from him again. And so here I am sitting, okay, well, what's going wrong? Didn't really have any time to think it or, you know, work through it. Hell, I hadn't even worked through my, my marriage with my ex-husband, let alone deal with the second one. So when you said, what did I learn and how did I learn to help myself and love myself? It didn't come until after I broke up with the, well, the, the second guy broke up with me. Um, I discovered I had colon cancer. Oh, geez. Yeah. So here I am, um, 2019, discovering I have colon cancer. Literally a week afterwards, they had me in the hospital and they uh, cut me open and removed a three centimeter uh, tumor from the base of my colon. And uh, after three very long weeks of trying to recover from it, um, I had to basically go home. I live alone. And mm-hmm. uh, so I came home to an empty house and I basically had to just get along myself. I, mm-hmm. I had no sick days left. So I actually had to go to school uh, before I was ready. And I was literally standing in front of my class, holding my belly so that it wouldn't pop out or something would split or something. And it was uh, a scary experience. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And as I said, it was very isolating because A, I live alone and B, all my friends here basically said in Halifax said they, they just disappeared. And so again, I felt even more isolated and I felt, well, geez, you know, this is just going down the same road again. Um, I don't seem to be worthwhile uh, and feeling pretty sorry for myself. And I ended up meeting a friend. Now, when I say a friend, he was just this amazing friend. Uh, I have to give a shout out to my friend, Sean. He lives in Cape Cod. He developed a relationship with me long distance, and he came up to visit me just as I was starting my chemotherapy. Sight unknown, we we met, and he was one of the most brilliant people that I'd ever met. A uh, kind-hearted soul. He he looked after me for a week and uh, or two weeks, I guess, before he had to go home. And that relationship opened up the possibility that, you know, I could maybe actually start loving myself because mm-hmm. this man seemed to see something in me. Uh, it was 
um, he is a husband and everything. So there was really no potential relationship there, but right. yet he was a kind hearted soul that um, understood me and respected me and allowed me to voice my concerns about things. Um, I, I got to the point where I could even say, well, look, Sean, I'm feeling sorry for myself today. And he'd listen, he'd never judge, give me some suggestions and I'd move on. And so as I started opening up myself to Sean, for example, I had another friend who came and visited me while I was uh, going through the chemo and he helped me out. And again, the relationship kind of opened up in front of me saying, you know, there are people out there that actually care. Mm. And I think it took two narcissistic relationships, being HIV positive for most of my life, um, then getting hit with cancer for me to realize, hey, there's something that I got to change in my life. And that's where the starting to love yourself comes in because it it took the cancer to get over it, develop new friendships with people. These people that stuck around, they didn't disappear. And they kind of elbowed me into the direction of, look, Grant, maybe you need to do something about this. And so Sean convinced me to go online, help. And I, I joined a gay men's group and we did a ton of work on energetic attraction. And here I was realizing, oh my God, if I raise my energetic level, um, I'm going to start attracting more energetic people because what I was always attracting were narcissists, uh, broken wing syndrome people, you know, how they're, you know, you want to fix yeah. some sort of guys, but never someone who was just a normal, loving, caring gay man who wanted to be with me and not want to use me. And so I could never figure out, well, why did I never, why am I not meeting men like this? And it wasn't until I went through the energetic courses that I realized, well, you know, you've got to open up yourself and you've got to raise your energy and you have to start looking positively at yourself before other people start seeing that. And so that was the turning point. So you mentioned earlier, right after the the the, the divorce, that I might have learned something. No, it took two relationships and about a cancer and then getting some help because a friend was kind enough to push me in that direction to realize, yes, I have to do some inner work. I had to learn about who I was as a person. And above all, I had to let go of all the shame that I was carrying on my shoulders. Shame about being a gay man, shame about being HIV positive, um, having the shame of having to go through cancer. Um, oh, you know, coming out, being shamed of being a gay person you know, that perception that gay men, oh my God, they have sex with other men and they stick right. their, their dick in, you know, all that stuff. You know what I'm right, talking about. Right, exactly. And, and, and there's that perception that, oh my God, that's dirty. And it wasn't until I did the course and then I started thinking about it, you know, why should I be ashamed for being a gay man and having the sex that I do? Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, this wasn't a roadblock. It was a speed bump, but it was a speed bump that woke me enough enough up enough to actually do something about it. And so there I was, um, raised my energetic attraction. Um, I started meeting men. Um, now I'm going to say I'm still single at 60, but um, I've been meeting incredible men, and they're men that are not narcissists. They're they're true. They're friendly, and it, it's really changed my outlook on how. I look at the world. Um, it allowed me to start looking at, you know, I'm a person as a teacher, 
I have a very definite personality when I'm that. Um, I taught aerobics classes for almost 30 years, and I was a different person there. But the personal grant was always the one that got pushed to the back. And, and I said, well, which one of them, which is the real me? And it took some time to realize that all three of those things were me as a personality. As a teacher, I'm outgoing. As an aerobics instructor, I was outgoing. But as a grant, I was shy, introverted, and I had to find some way of combining the three. And so, but, that, but that's a big piece of self-awareness. Uh-huh. When we <laughs> see ourselves as a whole and we bring all those pieces together, there is no siloing as much as we try. Like, okay, well, this, you know, when people say, well, but, but that this is, this is my gay self. I'm like, well, okay. There's gay aspects of yourself. Yes. But gay is part of you. This is my dad self. This is my husband self. This is my, you yep. know, work self. This is my podcaster self. Right. Yes, there's bits and pieces each of each of those things that's different. I get it. I'm not I'm not even going to like pretend that there's not, but it's a huge piece. I know for me, it was a huge piece of my own self-awareness when I started to go, "Wait, I'm one whole integrated person." Mm-hmm. And, you know, and but don't you think Grant that part of this comes from we as gay, I guess just talk to the gay man even though I know what happens in the rest of our LGBTQ community. We get told from a very young age, we'll just separate that part from you. Just separate that. And so suddenly, the more you're told, we'll just separate that. Just separate that. It's not like a bad behavior. You can change the behavior. And even though I know there's out there, those out there would say, no, it's still a behavior. You guys just, it's a behavior you learn. Yeah, fuck you. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's one of those things where you go, but I'm not surprised because I've heard this many times from my clients, number one. But many guests that have come on all of my podcasts, they're like, yes, there, there is no siloing this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's part of the whole essence of who we are. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I mean, as I look back at my life, it's very tempting to be feeling, oh, God, Grant, you should have woken up years ago. But I think all of those barriers or speed bumps or detours or whatever you want to call them were the path that I needed to take in order to become the person that I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was one of the reasons that I got through COVID so easily. I mean, I live alone. Um, I had to teach online for that first year. Um, I was already alone and I, I had already developed the idea that, okay, there's a difference between being lonely and alone. And so during COVID, uh, I was actually very comfortable because I was alone, but I was enjoying it. And that's where I finally picked up my novel, which I had left before I got married he took 100% of my time. So I had no courage to pick up that short story that I written back in 2009 and bring it forward to during COVID. And that short story blossomed to 62 chapters. And uh, geez, I, I think it, the, the book is like 384 pages. Yeah, 384 wow. pages. Um, because I had enough belief in myself and that I understood myself well enough that I could write this. And again, I started off writing it thinking, okay, well, it was on my bucket list. Before I die of HIV, I should write a book. And mm-hmm. so I met that goal, but then I realized I have to take this further. And so I had to get over the next speed bump of, okay, writing is a very personal thing. Right? Are you prepared to put it out there and hear positively, positive things or and negative things too? And through that two years of COVID, as I wrote the book, I realized that um, I had to 
be confident in what I'm doing. I, I love my book. I think it's a fantastic book. I'm proud of it. But I had to overcome that next little speed bump of saying, oh, there's going to be people out there that won't like it. You know, and it took me a bit of work on that. Um, oh, it's, my a editor, huge ama- it's a huge amount of work. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I mean, luckily, I had all that time to do it. But once it was done, there was that fear of what do I do with it now? And that was the scary part. And I have to admit, my my editor at uh, the self-publishing company, they were they, them. So they were non-binary. And I was so impressed with their work with me. They really helped me see that I actually had a novel that was worth publishing. They helped me fix all the mistakes that I, I had made when I was typing and made me realize that, Grant, you've written a novel, put it out there. It's your baby, but let it go once it's published and don't worry whether other people like it or not. And so it was another milestone for me. It wasn't a barrier from publishing the story. It was just a little speed bump that taught me another lesson that um, I have done something. It, it's not everybody can has done this, but it's something amazing and that I should be proud of what I did. And that takes me back to, oh my God, you Grant, you shouldn't be proud of yourself because my dad taught me, don't be too vain there, Grant. Take care of everybody else, but never talk about yourself. And that was carried forward with all this other, the shame and all that crap. And I had to get rid of that. But that is one of the biggest, hardest pieces of stuff to get rid of. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we've all been told, I mean, I think it's a gener- much more of a generational thing for our generation and our parents' generation than it is. I mean, I've got millennials in my world, and I feel like as a dad, I did a pretty good job of like not saying don't be proud of yourself. Don't, you know, toot your own horn. I want you to toot your own horn. I want you to be proud of who you are. I want you to see the beauty of, you know, who you are. But man, it was hard for me. Like I, so my first book, because it's my quote, kind of memoir, autobiography sort of thing, but it's also about how to come out of the closet later in life. It ended up being a a image of a guy kind of like half the faces on the front of the book. And most people who've seen it, like, is that you? I'm like, well, no, because he's really hot. So yeah, I wish it was me, but (laughs) you know, and it's a very artistic rendition. But they're like, why isn't it you? I'm like, because I don't want it to be me on the cover of the book. Plus, I just, that's not my thing. I wouldn't, I mean, just because I wrote a book, I wouldn't see myself putting my face on the cover of something. But there was that shame. There was a huge amount Mm -hmm. of shame. And then about the time the book was coming out, there was a lot of stuff happening in my business. I was like, okay, well, going to become a speaker, all this other stuff. Well, as a speaker, Mm -hmm. you are the brand. I mean, and even as an author, you're the brand, even though you got the products, the books. And Grant, I fought it. I fought Mm -hmm. it big time because, you know, I had the brand, the coming out coach, the gay man's life coach. The book was frankly, my dear, I'm gay. And everybody's like, you're the brand. You need a website. That's you, the brand. I'm like, I don't want it. I don't. And and ironically, I'm a branding marketing guy. That's my background. I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. I get it. But, and finally, a friend of mine said to me, what are you ashamed of? I'm like, what do you mean? What am I ashamed of? She said, what are you ashamed of for you to be the brand? And that was a big moment because I had to get out of my ego, which is where my narcissist upbringing came from, 
which I have to fight because those of us who've been around it, we kind of take it on. And so then we have to learn to fight it. And then I'm like, no, yeah, you're right. I am the brand. I need to be really proud of what I put together here. I need to be proud of this podcast, of Life Uncloseted, of Frankly, My Dear, I'm Gay, of being a speaker, of all these things of being a coach. But there's still times, Grant, that that little, that little voice shows up. Mm-hmm. Like it's showing up right now with book number two. It's like, who the fuck do you think you are, man? Yeah. But then we take the deeper breaths and go, we yep. can get through this too, over that hurdle, over that big boulder in the road. So, Mm -hmm. well, you know, it's interesting you should say that. I mean, I've been a teacher for 28 years. Now, A, way back when, when I started, I didn't think I was going to be teaching much more than just a year and then I was going to keel over and die. So here I am, 28, 29 years later, I've been teaching for so long um, that I, even in those 29 years and even up until just recently, I still had the idea that I was a fake. Mm-hmm. And that there was no way that I could truly be a teacher. So mm-hmm. I, I I lied to myself saying, uh, well, actually, I, th- I felt like I was lying to everybody else, that I, I wasn't, I was a, a liar and that I wasn't a real teacher. And it took this inner work along with, you know, learning how to love myself and um, accepting myself and letting go of the shame and realizing there's a lot of you need to amalgamate a lot of these things. So the yeah. teacher, the aerobics instructor, the weightlifter, the author, um, the man Grant mm-hmm. is who I am. And now I, I'm happy to say that my days are a lot happier because I've accepted all this stuff. And mm-hmm. like you said earlier, there are those little voices that pop in every once in a while saying, mm, are you sure about that? I mean, just uh, yesterday, um, the publishing company had a Facebook on Facebook post, and a couple naysayers were saying, "Well, why are you putting pride signs for for this this publisher?" And I'm just thinking, "Oh my God, you know, uh, homophobia is still alive and well in Canada." Oh and it it hurt to see that and realize it because they were responding to my post saying congratulations to Friesen Press and congratulations for me getting the book out and that it's just in time for Pride, and yet there's still these naysayers saying, "Oh, why are you doing this? This isn't appropriate. Why are you celebrating Pride? You're a publishing company." And the old me would have just shrunk from that. They would. I would have said, "Oh my God, I, I, I'm going to crawl under a rock and hide." Uh, now, I just said, you know, I just put a little comment to their comment, and I moved on. I said, to hell with them. You know, I'm going to live my life the way I am. I'm a gay man. I wrote a gay science fiction romance, and I'm proud of it. And I also <laughs> didn't take out the sex scenes because I was convinced that I shouldn't have gay sex scenes in my gay science fiction novel. But my editor, they said, no, leave them in. Mm-hmm. And I realized I'm trying to dictate what the book should be for a straight person and tone down the sex. And I thought, no, I, I can't. I left it in. And they convinced me to do so. So why, so why this gay science fiction? Do you, are you a sci-fi guy or this is something that's just like, Hey, if I'm going to go down a genre, here's mm-hmm. where I'm going to go. Well, um, thanks for asking that question because I am a science fiction nut. I always have been. As a matter of fact, as a child, I used sci-fi as a hiding place, you know, watching Star Trek and Lost in Space and all those shows that came out in the 70s and even up into the 80s. 
And I used it to hide because it was a world where I could dream about stuff that I could, that weren't related to what was happening in my life. And I had nothing to do with the guys in the tight, you know, oh. outfits and stuff. Nothing whatsoever, right? <laughs> well, maybe there's a, well, I can remember uh, Buck Rogers is this little tight outfit uh-huh, there. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and Starbuck on Battlestar Galactic. And uh-huh. Oh yeah, I had, uh-huh. I was thinking, yeah. you know. And see, I but, wasn't a sci-fi guy, but I, those images, when I'd see them, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> So, so you asked me what what promoted me to think about writing a gay science fiction was right. It, it was around the time when they um, there were really no gay men in science fiction, mm. and just as I started it, there was one in Doctor Who, which was mm. Captain Jack Harkness, right? This gorgeous guy. He's bi, but he tends to love the guys more. And I'm thinking, good on you. Mm. And so I said, I'm going to write a short story. So I wrote the short story. It was about two gay men, one stowed away on a spaceship. He's going to rescue his partner. And I set it aside because as I mentioned earlier, uh, my husband took over my life for six years. And it wasn't until after I got through the uh, the cancer that I said, okay, I'm going to pull this thing out. And that's where it blossomed. So it, it went from a little short story of one chapter to 62 in the course of about 15 months. Wow. And for me, it was a very rewarding experience because here I am, I've created a world, a universe where the gay people and the trans people are all centrally focused in the story and that there are straight people in the story, but they're not the predominant ones. Mm-hmm. And there, there, there really were no stories that I knew of up until recently that there were stories where gay people were central in the story. So I thought I'm going to write it. And I did. And nice. yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a massive universe. I mean, uh, I might indulge a little bit and sort of give you a summary of the, yeah, the yeah, please do. Uh, well, well, Lifeline Origins is a universe where humanity is spread out over three galaxies, the Milky Way, Andromeda, and Messier 100. They're sort of in the same area. And as humanity spread out, they discovered there are no extraterrestrials. Where are they? And so they jump to the three um, galaxies, and then this darkness follows them through through the exact path that they took to explore these three galaxies. And all of a sudden, they have this this need to hide themselves. So over the eons, the people that lived in these three galaxies lost track of each other, forgot where they had come because they'd covered up their tracks. And so here you have three galaxies filled with humanity but they don't know that everyone else exists. And in the earlier times, what the people had done is they had genetically changed gay men um, that they could actually have the potential to mind read. And so as they developed, um, gay men became mind readers. By the way, I pulled that idea from Gaydar. Um, I kind of took the gate, the Gaydar idea and, you know, I took it even further and, uh, The story starts with um, a man who is afraid to be sexual because it's kind of an echo of what's happening today. He is afraid to be gay because um, the society in which he lives is discriminating against them. And he has to hide the fact that he's a gay man. And so as I wrote this character, Tam, I realized he's a lot like me. He went through a lot of the things that I did as a gay man. So, even though he's a separate character, he has a lot of my characteristics. 
And so the story goes that Tam has to rescue his partner who has been arrested because of being gay. And the thing is that they are a lifeline. And a lifeline is two men who've been joined so that they mind read. They can feel what the other feels. They can think and understand what the other one's feeling. If the other one dies, you die too sort of thing. But they have a total mesh between the two of them. And here he is. Tam has been separated from his his lifeline, Brogan, who is on a prison world. And so Tam has to figure out a way to do it covertly. He stows away on a spaceship and tries to go to the prison world. And the story branches out from there because the original story was he's trapped on a a spaceship and he's stowed away and he has no idea how he's going to rescue it. And so when I got to that point, that's where all the interesting stuff came in. So in my novel, there are pirates, space pirates. Uh, There are sirens. Um, These are good sirens. They're not the ones that make you crash on rocks. They are the people who bind the lifelines together. And so they're the ceremonial uh, aspect of joining lifelines, and that's their sole purpose. But their all second purpose is to find origins. Where did humanity come from? And so there's two stories happening at the same time, how Tam has to try to rescue his partner, but he's also addressing the fact that there's also a bigger story. The bigger story is that they need to find where they came from. And so the big search is that they have to find their origins. And as the story progresses, uh, it's discovered it's not just the rescue of Tam and Brogan, that they may serve a function that's a lot more because of their genetic alterations. And so there's there's space battles. Uh, they're not pew, pew, pew like Star Wars. They're right. a lot toned down. Um, but there's space battles. Uh, there's uh, fights. There's uh, oh, some sex going on. Um, there's all sorts of things that go on in this story. But to the point, and of course, I'm not going to give away the ending. Um, the ending does set you up for the second novel. So uh, there's going to be at least three in this this series. So it's that idea that uh, even a million years of the future, you could still be discriminated against for being gay. And the only reason that they were being discriminated against is because they're mind readers, not because they were gay. And the the bad guy, the antagonist, wants all the gay men to put them together so he can mi- have the mind read so he knows everybody's ideas and nobody can assassinate him. So that's his reason for bringing all these gay men together, not because they're having gay sex. He wants mm-hmm. them for another reason, and he experiments on them. Wow. So this whole story is is around a rescuing all these gay men who have been arrested, put on this prison world, and experimented on. So sounds sounds pretty heavy, but no, but it sounds interesting and like something that you're you're bringing like something you love together. Number one, number yep. two, you're integrating part of your truth into the story, and you're giving people some fantasy to play and work within. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great job, man. Great job. Well, cheers. Thank you. Um, The the main character, by the way, he, for some reason, I wrote him as a person of color. And Mm. uh, I had no idea why. And it wasn't until after I published and recently I realized, you know, it just, it was meant to be because I didn't want to project the idea, well, okay, there's discrimination against gay people, but um, people of color uh, or color of skin was no longer an issue in this. It was specifically being gay. And I felt that he needed to be a person of color. And um, 
I checked with all my my African-Americans and African-Canadians. Is this okay? Am I appropriating and all this stuff? They all said, Grant, fantastic. You're diversifying science fiction and you're putting a black man as the main character. And I thought, fantastic. I'm doing the right thing. And so um, I've taken a little flack from it too, though. Um, I actually tried to do a book launch here in Halifax with a local gay bookstore and for some reason, this white cis gay guy said, "No, we can't. Uh, we can't take your book because there's a, a black man on the cover and you're white, so we can't take it." So okay, well, and, I found and, another. And, and there you go. There's the discrimination within our own circles. So mm-hmm. yeah. Well, Grant, I don't know. I love listening to these stories that of guys, gay men, mm-hmm. who find their path to doing their passion, living how they want to live, mm-hmm. being who they want to be. Even beyond, as you said, the boulders and the speed bumps and everything else. Yep. Yeah. Such a just such a refreshing thing to hear because I, I there's so many, I don't know, I hate to be a downer towards the end of this podcast, but there's so many gay men out there that they're ah, yeah, you know, I can't find friends. I can't mm-hmm. do this. I don't like my job. I don't have a guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And yet you've taken the speed bumps, all of this stuff, mm-hmm. and you've given yourself permission to move beyond. Yep. And I just, I find that really refreshing. Well, so. cheers. I, I, I don't specifically look for boyfriends. I'm just living my life. And if he falls from the sky into my lap, I'll take him. There you but, go. Uh, I'm going to be retiring in a year. So I'm sort of moving into a new aspect of being a 60-year-old man and retiring and letting go of my teaching and giving myself more time to write and things like that. So it's a new chapter. The old me couldn't have dealt with this. Uh, well, I would have and that, but that's... But that's part of our growth too. We start to see what the old self couldn't have done. Yep. Now here we go. We're we're shedding quote shedding new you know skin and coming into our new place in life. Yep. Anyway, well, Grant, thank you so much for sharing yourself and being here with us. If somebody wants to get your book, where's the best place they can find it? Well, it's on all the major bookstores. Uh, you can also go through my website, which is www.grantedwardmiller.ca. Sorry, it's at, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, www.grantedwardmiller.ca. CA is for Canada. Yep. And if they can find there, it takes you to all the places where you can get it. Awesome. And yeah. So the uh, the self-publishing company, Friesen Press, actually prints the books cheaper for them. So if they order through Friesen, they actually get it cheaper. So Okay. Good to know, yeah. man. Good to know. Well, thank you so much for being with us here on 40 Plus Gay Men Gay Talk. And guys, if you find Grant's book of interest, please go out and support your local artists. I know I said local, but we want to support our own in our community. And um, let's not let the let's not let the book industry die. I know there's a lot of people pushing for get rid of books here, get rid of books there. And, you know, let's not do that. So thanks so much, Grant, for being part of this and, and sharing so willingly of yourself um, with my audience. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap for 40 plus gay men, gay talk, where size doesn't matter. We drop our bullshit, get over our screwed up fears, make bold moves and live life without apologies. Don't forget to join us on Facebook at 40 plus gay men, gay talk, where the conversations continue.